Hello and welcome to the second season of All I Know. My name is Jen Winkleman and I'm your host for this time where we gather together as if we're around a little campfire and we're there to listen as everyday people tell us some of their stories. Here at this show, we believe that behind every single face, there are stories. And in every story, there are lessons for life that are waiting to be learned by the rest of us. So today, our guest and I will have a largely unscripted conversation, aside from the anchor questions that we use to get into our interviews. And then as our guest story unfolds, if you and I choose to do so, we can catch the truth and knowledge and wisdom that's being shared with us like little fireflies in a jar and then use that as light for our own paths in life. Thanks again for being with us. This is All I Know. Hello and welcome back for another episode of All I Know. Today, I'm really excited and happy to introduce you to my friend, Kim. Kim, welcome. Thank you, Jen. It's great to be here. I'm really glad that you're here and I really appreciate you being willing to do this because I think you have some important things to say. So I'm excited that we're taking a chance in front of the microphone together. So for those of us who are listening today, Mm -hmm. what do we need to know about you and who you are to make the most of the conversation that we're going to have? Well, I have been married for 33 years to my husband, Tony, and together we have a son, Gavin, who is 31 years old. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and have been working in that field since about 1995 and have thoroughly enjoyed that journey. I'm also a person that lives a little bit different than most people. I live off grid, which means that we are not connected to, you know, the city electricity or, or anything like that. So we have a well and we have solar to give us power. And so that's what makes us a little bit different. Can you describe your property a little bit? Like what's your, what's your house like? Do you guys grow your own food? Sure. Well, we originally lived like most people. We lived in a suburb of Denver and we had a beautiful, large home. And about five and a half years ago, we decided to purchase some land. So we have about 37 and a half acres and we built a little cabin. And when I say little, I mean little because it's like 1200 square feet It has one bedroom, one bathroom, a living room, a small kitchen, and I guess a little dining room as well. But you have a bathroom. It's not an outhouse. It always wasn't that way. (laughs) Um, When we first moved up there, we had a compost toilet. So that was a little bit crazy. How do compost toilets work for anyone who may not know what that is? Well... If you really must know, (laughs) it's definitely not a toilet that you flush. So you have to use peat moss. And so when you go to the restroom, you have to stir your... (laughs) 
waist. Your waist <laughs> into the peat moss by hand by literally spinning this handle. And um, over time, it decomposes. And so that's how we went to the restroom for many, many months until we put in a septic tank and were able to have a normal toilet. So do you have to replace peat moss in a compost? You do. And that's a pretty nasty process that I certainly didn't do. Um, my husband, Tony did that. And so we would store it in a, um, like a big drum type of barrel. And interestingly enough, if you keep that in that barrel for about a year, it ends up being great fertilizer for flowers, trees, things like that. For a long time as well, the only heat source we had was our wood stove. Until last year, we uh, finally came into the 21st century and we installed a actual furnace. But all of it runs on solar. All of it runs on solar. Everything runs on solar. So it's pretty, pretty awesome to plug in your cell phone and know that the sun is charging it. And you don't have to pay for it. It's free. It's free. Well, aside from the solar panels. Right. (laughs) On the spectrum between ordinary and extraordinary, where would you plot your life? I would plot my life probably more towards extraordinary. And I say that just because of my experiences of being adopted, how I started my life, being married at a very young age and having a son at a very young age and really going through some pretty hard times, really challenging times. And even though I say that, I'm happy for those times because it's allowed me to have grit. You know, when you go through really difficult situations, you really come out a better person, a different person, someone that can handle challenges. So it sounds like you're plotting your life on that extraordinary end of the spectrum, partially because you've been through some extraordinarily hard things. Yes. But that you do have gratitude for those experiences because it cultivated grit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So I think as we go through our lives, it's inevitable that challenges will come and some people can handle challenges and some people can't. And I think because of my experiences growing up that it's allowed me to be able to bounce back when I face adversity. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I'm pretty thankful for that. When you talk about difficulty in childhood, is there anything you can offer us to give us some context around what that means to you? Well, I was adopted and my start in life was, was really difficult and somewhat unusual. And I think it really started from the time that I was born because when I was born, my birth mom decided that she was not able to take care of me. And the story that's been told to me was that I was left on a street and military police found me and I was malnourished and sick. And so I went to a hospital and from the hospital I went to an orphanage and from the orphanage I went to a foster home and then I was adopted. So when you talk about adoption, Kim, and being left on a street and going to a hospital and then going to an orphanage and then how, how old were you? Do you have conscious memories of that time in your life? 
no, I don't have any conscious memories and I don't really have specific time frames. The only thing that I really know is that I was adopted when I was about 10 months old. So that would have been August of 1969. And you came from Seoul, Korea. And I came from Seoul, Korea to the United States at 10 months old. Yes. So when you make reference to a difficult childhood or difficult experiences throughout your life, is it only the adoption that you feel like is the hard start or were there other things that were tricky even after? Well, I think the hard start in life was the first thing. And then following that was being adopted into a multiracial family. So my mother would identify herself as Mexican and my dad who passed away last October, he would have identified himself as Caucasian. And so having said that, being Korean in a home with two parents that don't look like you, that was, that was pretty hard. That was really hard. And then having siblings also that don't look like you was really hard too. And then there was a lot of stuff that happened within my home that I probably won't share, but basically the relationship between my parents was hard. There was a lot of tension and how they handle things as a couple, as parents was really difficult and challenging too. So there were like layers of complication for you in your growing up years. Absolutely. Did it get easy then in adulthood? I would say things didn't get easier until honestly about age 40 and it so happened and I'm not sure why this happened, but it did for a reason, but I was in my email and I ended up seeing this email for a invitation to come to a Korean adult adoptee group in the Denver area. And I had never heard of this person before. I didn't even know this group existed. Or how they found you. Or how they found me. Like, I literally have no idea. And I opened up the email, saw the invitation, and went. And so this was, at age 40, was the first time that I really was exposed to people who look like me. And people who had shared similar experiences and so it was then at that time that I allowed myself to, to be around people that looked like me. It was the first time that I really started to, started to heal, started on my healing journey of adoption and all the other experiences that I had endured growing up. And what I didn't share that I'll share now is that growing up, one of the things that I did because... You know, when I was adopted in 1969, the support, the information, the education around adoption just didn't exist. And so my parents really did the best job with what they knew how. When they adopted me, they adopted me because they wanted me, because they wanted another child. What they didn't understand or research or know is the impact of adoption. And transracial and tra adoption too. Exactly. It's like a whole other layer. Exactly. And so one of the things that I always struggled with growing up was just this sense of who am I, the sense of identity. And so because I wasn't comfortable being in my own skin, and what I mean by that is looking Asian, but not being Asian. 
So if someone was to ask me what my culture is, I would say probably Mexican American because I grew up knowing those, you know, those knowing those two sets of cultures. Yeah, that was the underpinning of your family. That was the underpinning of my family. And so this is funny to say, but it's the truth is that because I wasn't comfortable with who I was or what I looked like, I did everything, everything in my power to not be associated with being Asian. So what that meant for me was I wouldn't establish friendships with Asian people. I wouldn't eat Asian food because if I did those things, then that would mean that I was Asian. And until age 40, when I came across that email for the Korean Adult Adoptee Group, everything I did was to avoid having to be identified as Asian Asian or Korean, everything. Okay, so it feels hard to take a little bit of a turn, but let's do it so that we can get through our anchor questions and then we can really dive into the meat of what we're going to talk about today. So that third one has to do with the definition of success. How do you define success? I don't think I would have been able to identify success had I not attended that Korean adult adoptee group. And I say that because it's a real turning point for you. It it was a huge turning point for me. The way I define success for me now, because it was such a struggle was being okay with who I am, knowing who I am, accepting, you know, what's happened to me from the time that I was born for me being okay with how I look and not being afraid to be in the world, if you know what I mean, is successful because of the shame that I had so heavily growing up. So success for me looks very different than other people. It's not about title. It's not about money. It really lies in being okay with who I am and what I look like no matter if anybody else is. So that brings us to the last anchor question with that kind of heavy hitter, which Mm -hmm. is what would you say are three events, experiences, maybe they're themes or circumstances that you've encountered that you think have most shaped who you are? Well, obviously the, the first one I would say would be just my adoption experience. The second one I would say would be the birth of my son. And that is because when you're adopted and you have no ties to other people, you know, blood relatives, it is such an amazing experience to give birth to somebody that you know has your blood. So that's, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful for me. And then the third thing I would say is experiencing racism really throughout my life. And I won't say much more right now about that, but it may be something that... Because that's kind of where you want to go today. Yes. I think it's exactly where I want to go today. Okay. Okay. The three big things, just to make sure I'm with you, are your adoption experience Mm -hmm. and just that really hard start in life and how that teed things up for you in terms of your development and your understanding of the world. Even though you don't have conscious memories of that time, it seems like you're quite clear that the 
imprint or the significance, even though it was subconscious, has played a huge part in who you are. Yes. And then you also talked about the birth of your son and that that was really pivotal because it's for the very first time in your life, you're face to face with someone who is a blood relative and you had never had that before in a conscious memory. Exactly. And then the final piece, which we're going to dig into a little bit more is experiencing racism. And you feel like you've experienced racism your whole life. Yes. I mean, throughout my life, there's been, it's not as though it's been constant, but there have certainly been situations, many situations where I experienced racism. Are you comfortable walking us through some of that? And how do you think it's impacted you? I'm really curious about the impact. Well, my earliest memories of experiencing racism probably would be in grade school. And so what I remember is just being really bullied um, and being made fun of for how I look. My dad was in the Air Force. And so because of that, we traveled and moved around quite a bit. And so it appeared that wherever we went, I was the only person of color. And so because of that, I think racism for me really started around grade school when kids would just make fun of me and bully me for what I look like. For an example, they would make racial slurs like calling me a chink or a Jap, or they would do different body movements. For example, they would take their fingers and put them, you know, on each side of their eye and in an up and down position, you know, say Chinese, Japanese, things like that. And so that would probably be my earliest memories of really recognizing through how other people saw me that I was different. I have to tell you, it was pretty painful. Mm -hmm. I mean, even to talk about it now, I can see the people that were doing it and it wasn't that they were just doing it. They were doing it with other kids around. And so it was almost this public shame that I was experiencing of being made fun of because of what I look like. And so to think about that and feel the reaction, even as I'm speaking is almost as if what, you know, how it was back then. And that was just like really not knowing what to do, not knowing what to say. Like in my mind, I was thinking, how could these kids be so mean to me? I, I just didn't understand it. It didn't make any sense to me and it hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brain flashed to a story that you told me before we started recording. And I wonder if it's one that you're open to sharing. And I don't know where it fits in this timeline when you talk about elementary school kind of being when you were clear that people were seeing you differently and giving you a hard time because of it. How does that fit with the um, story that you shared about you and your sister? sister. It was probably around the same time. My sister, who's very light-skinned, I think we were about probably five or six years old is what I'm thinking. We were taking a bath together and my mom was in the bathroom with us. And I remember looking at my sister's skin and then looking at my skin and thinking to myself, I'm dirty. And so I told my mom with a washcloth in my hand, scrubbing my arm, I said, mom, I'm going to get this dirt off me. I'm going to get it off. And 
She said, Kim, what are you talking about? She said, that's the color of your skin. I don't even know if I had a reaction to that because, you know, again, my parents weren't very knowledgeable about the impact of adoption or what would help, you know, me feel comfortable in my own skin. And so she was able to tell me that that was the color of my skin, but it went no further. So there was no other conversation about that. So it was just a lot at that age to be noticing it in my own home that I was different than my siblings, but then also having that same experience outside the house where one kid would make fun of me amongst a bunch of kids. And then I would just stand there not knowing what to do with myself and yeah, and I'm wanting to run, but didn't do that. And so those were really, really hard, hard times. Do you think... And this is probably a really clumsy question, and I don't even know if it's well-placed, but as an adult, when you think back on those elementary days, do you think those kids were being unkind because it was mean-spirited, or do you think they were ignorant? And does it make a difference? I don't... Maybe it doesn't make a difference. I would say that it's probably both. For sure, I took it as being mean-spirited. 100%. Again, I could not understand, I could not fathom how, how another human being could say those things to another human being. I I just, even at that young of age, I knew that that was wrong. I I knew that. And so, yes, I think they were being mean-spirited. And I also feel like they didn't know either. They didn't know. And so, Yeah. It doesn't change the impact, though. It does not change the impact, whether it was mean-spirited or for lack of knowledge. When you say those things to another human being, it cuts, and it cuts deep. Another comment that I remember, and this is really bad. This is probably one of the worst things anybody probably has asked me or said to me. But I had a little boy around the same age, maybe a little bit older, maybe six or seven, ask me if my genitals were slanted like my eyes. And back then, of course, you know, we're talking early Mm seventies or so these things weren't talked about and he did not use the word genitals. Yeah. uh, Probably a lot more crass. Right. And so at that age, I wasn't even sure if I knew what he was talking about. If if that makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's really ingrained in my head, even today at my age. Um, and again, it was like, you know, what What person, are you talking about? Right. And that one really hurt, I think, worse than the other things that I mentioned, just because it was so personal. Those things were really hard and really continued to shape how I saw myself. Which was how? which was, I was uncomfortable in my skin, which was, I didn't want to look the way that I did. And if there was anything that I could do to change it, I would have, because my world probably would have been a lot easier. It's really hard starting a new school, and it was like mid-year, and walking into the class, and the teacher introducing me as a new student, and then asking me to sit by a boy, And when I looked around, everybody in the classroom 
was white. And so it was kind of like, here we go again, another situation where I'm different. And so if there was anything that I could have done to change what I looked like so that people would accept me, that people would like me, that I wouldn't have to be embarrassed of what I looked like, I would have done it. As your friend, I just, I hate hearing that this was your experience. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it is this way with humans, with kids in our culture. What is it? I don't know. But why is it that a difference has to be something bad? You know, why, why does it have to have a negative connotation or a, a negative twist? Why can't it be something that just at worst makes us curious? Yeah, that's a great question. And having those experiences at a very young age, you know, those things didn't get better. There was other situations that happened, you know, as I grew up. But when you talk about impact, I think as I'm thinking about it, the number one way it impacted me was it froze me. What I mean by that is that it froze me in a way where I was not able to express myself. I was afraid to be in social situations because I immediately thought they're not going to like me. Like that was an assumption that I went into, into new social situations way into my adulthood. And it had impact on my marriage too, because I would make these assumptions again, that people didn't like me because I was Asian and that's crazy to think that way. But when you're brought up that way to not, first of all, to not know yourself, to not like yourself, to not be okay in your own skin. And then you have kids reinforcing, reinforcing it. Yes. Reinforcing that message. And there's nobody stepping in to help. And there's nobody stepping in to help. Again, my parents were just not educated enough to know that I needed help. And because they didn't say anything, I didn't say anything. And so it was a very lonely, it was a very lonely place to be. Did the adults that were around you know that these things were happening? Mm -mm. No, they didn't ask. I didn't share. That's the way our family was. It wasn't a very talkative family. We didn't communicate well. And certainly tension and crisis and, you know, those types of situations weren't dealt with well. And so I did not trust my parents enough to tell them what I was experiencing because I didn't think they would know how to deal with it. And so for a very long time, honestly, I said nothing. Well, and as a kid, you just accept those things as truth. Right. And because children are so egocentric, they automatically make the connection. It's true. And it's true because of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, those types of things continued through middle school and high school. And then, as I said, up into adulthood as well, there was many events that again, are just unbelievable. You would think that our society has changed around acceptance of differences, but it's just not true. It just, it just is not true. And to say that racism still exists, I even hate that to come out of my mouth. And yet it's so true because I've experienced it as an adult. So a few examples, when I went into my master's program 
and it was a social work program. There was a student there that saw me. And again, I was the only person of color. When I looked at the demographics of the social work program, 1% was Asian Pacific Islander. And that 1% was me. And so I actually had a social work student say to me, you're only here because you're Asian. I mean, what the hell? And what the hell? Especially in a social work program. I mean, it's not okay in right. any discipline, but you would hope that someone in a helping profession yes. or training to be a helper and a yep. healer would have clearer vision. Yes. Well, that's what I thought too. And as I said, I developed some grit because of my experience and I used that grit with her and I looked at her probably with disbelief, but I said to her that wasn't true and that I have never, ever, ever, ever used my race to benefit me in any way, shape or form. So that was the end of the conversation. But again, you would think that we live in a society that accepts people, but to have that experience, you know, about 20 years ago, which really wasn't that, it's not that long, long, it's unbelievable. And as an adult too, some of the stuff that you described in elementary school, and I hate that my brain is doing this because I know this isn't right. I'm able to observe my own thinking, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like listening to you talk about the elementary experiences and being a person who works with elementary students, you know, as part of my full-time job, mm-hmm. part of my brain goes to making excuses because of their youth. Yes. And like, oh, it's just kids. And I, I don't actually believe that that's true, but it's like so deeply embedded that the thoughts are really automatic, you know? Mm-hmm. And so even as you're talking, I'm completely offended and upset and protective of you as my friend and wanting to like be with you on the playground and find a way to stand up. And simultaneously, there's a part of my brain that's making excuses for youth. But then when you tell this story about grad school, we're not talking about little kids anymore. Exactly. Yeah. It becomes even more unbelievable. Yeah. And it's kind of made me realize that this is reality. Racism. Racism. In our society today, racism still exists. Another example, my husband is from Iowa and we would often go back to Iowa to visit his parents. And if anybody knows anything about Iowa, Iowa is full of these, these little dinky towns, maybe, Corn. maybe made up of a hundred people. <laughs> Corn is what I think of. And they're all related. (laughs) We were in this little town that I won't mention, and we were going into a store, and there was a woman in front of me, and she saw me walking, like, literally right behind her. And she shut the door in my face when she should have held it. Now, in Iowa, it's predominantly Caucasian. Again, in this town, I was the only person of color and actually have always been everywhere we traveled in Iowa. But again, you know, that probably happened maybe less than 20 years ago. I, I'm, I, I'm not sure. But 
it doesn't matter the time frame. What matters is that it happened. Mm-hmm. And so to have a full grown adult shut the door in your face so that you can't come in. Now I did go in. Yeah. But, but it sends a message, but it sends a very clear message, which I was very used to. And that is you're not wanted and you're not wanted because you look different than me. That was really hard. And I would cry, and that's how I dealt with it. I would cry and cry because, remember, I didn't share it with anybody. And when I did try to share it, I did try to share it with my husband, and he didn't understand. And he would say, why are you crying? When I shared with him the experience that I just told you, he would say, why are you crying? And I'm not even sure if I had the words to say it because I expected my husband to understand, and he didn't even understand. How deep it cut? How deep it cut. And imagine being the only person of color and walking into a room or walking into a town, wherever it may be, and everybody just turns their head and looks at you. And I, I and, can't. And stares at you. I can't. I can't imagine right. that because I have never had to deal with it. The closest I can come to even beginning to understand what it might feel like is when we were traveling in South America. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we were, this is a little bit of a side conversation guys, but Kim and I took a trip to a country in South America to do some work in an orphanage. And as part of that trip, we bookended our time in the orphanage with a couple of little adventures. And one of our little adventures was in the wilderness. (laughs) (laughs) To say the least. (laughs) To say the least. Where the wild things are. In the jungle. And uh, the discomfort that I felt that night. We were at a remote camp and we were the only Americans in the camp. Yes, we were. And I could feel people's eyes on Mm -hmm. us. I could hear people talking about us. And I was afraid to go to sleep that night. Not because I was afraid of violence. Right. Or being hurt or something like it wasn't that kind of fear. It was just feeling so awkward and out of place that I I couldn't rest. Right. Yes. Yes. And that's the cl- closest I can come to beginning to understand what you're trying to say. Yeah. Well, that's a good start. Now, <laughs> <laughs> imagine having decades of that. And I think the other impact is you become very hypervigilant about your surroundings because it's almost this survival or self-protection or in terms of what are people going to think about me or what are they going to say or what are they going to do? I mean, what's happening in our country right now? Well, things are definitely escalated right now. Things are definitely escalated. And I have never felt physically afraid, you know, or endangered until recent events. But you are now. I think I am now just because as we all know that are listening And Jen, you know this too, just the things that have been happening to the Asian Pacific Islander population. And a lot of that, you know, as we've heard, has been generated from our past president in terms of, you know, naming or blaming COVID 
for the Chinese people. And so as a result, there's been many incidences where even the, the Asian elderly are being attacked. And so my thoughts are, geez, if they're willing to go to that length, I really probably need to be more aware of my surroundings. My sister, my oldest sister, has a lot of fear for me. And she has actually said that to me on a couple occasions where like, Kim, you've got to be careful. You've got to know where you're at. You need to look around because honestly, I just kind of walk around, you know, in my own little world and don't really pay much attention to anybody else. And now with all that's going on in the world, with just the racial tension across the country, I really am more hypervigilant and sensitive to my surroundings and who's around me. Well, and it's so, I'm sitting here listening to you and thinking this must be so complicated because the way that, Mm -hmm. the way that we started talking about this, tell me if I'm remembering this wrong. The way that we started talking about this was partly you saying that you experienced racism, Mm -hmm. but also that it was like tricky being Asian, but not feeling Asian because you weren't super connected to your Asian culture. Right. And so, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm just feeling really burdened right now. Mm -hmm. Like I, I know when you were talking about earlier in your life, you didn't feel Asian. Maybe there is part of you that feels more Asian now since 40 and becoming involved with car and all of that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. So you need to decide whether that's something you want to share. But if there's a part of you that stills like, yeah, I don't really identify that much with being Asian until I'm confronted with racism. And that's when I have to reconcile the fact that I'm Asian and I look different, but I don't feel different. Right. And then now bringing in this physical safety piece, it's like almost like you have to remind yourself. Yes. It's kind of like I experience the world just as it is, as I am. And so until somebody puts like a mirror in front of me that makes me acknowledge, oh yeah, I'm Korean. Does that make sense? So the stuff that's happening on the news with the Asian Pacific Islanders being attacked um, randomly, that's like putting a mirror in front of my face and saying, you're Asian, you need to be careful. Even though I've been exposed to the Korean culture through the Korean adult adoptees of the Rockies car, as you mentioned, I am definitely comfortable in my skin. However, how I saw myself then and how I see myself is the same. So on the outside, anybody that looked at me would say, oh, she's Asian. They might not be able to identify that I'm Korean. Well, most people like to actually tell you where they think you're from. Right. (laughs) Not to take us totally off track, but there's another experience to throw like on this pile is that Mm -hmm. we could be somewhere and people will ask you where you're from. Right. But they won't ask me because I'm white. Right. Or they may say, what are you? And that's usually how the questions posed is what are you? It would be different if they said, where are you from? Where do you originate from? What's your ethnicity? But instead, many times they've said, what are you? Half the time I want to say I'm an alien. (laughs) But, but I don't do that. I want to be with you res- when you say that. <laughs> right. 
uh, I've always wanted to say that. And I don't do that because I'm a very respectful person and I just honor their question and will answer that for them. But from the outside, anybody again would see me as being Asian, but inside because of my culture, the culture that I was brought up in makes me not Asian. And so that's, it's hard to explain, but that's what I mean. And living in that world is hard because people make assumptions about you. I mean, that's another racist thing, right? Assumptions about, oh, well, you're probably good in math. Uh, Wrong. You're probably a terrible driver. You're probably a scientist or a computer geek. And that's something big too. I mentioned when I first started that I'm a social worker. There are not many Asian social workers in the field. Yeah. Let alone Asian adoptee social worker. Mm -hmm. And so in a way that's kind of cool because it makes me unique, but it's just another difference and something that I have to attend to a lot in my work. So I don't want to take us too far off track because I want to still explore the Mm -hmm. emotional and psychological impact that you started touching Mm -hmm. on. But I also feel like I want to put a pin in this piece around physical safety and that you've come to this new chapter in your life where you're actually starting to think about that and have some fear around that for the first time. So which one do we do? (laughs) Which one do we pin for later? Let's put a pin on the physical safety because there's some other things that I'd like to share okay. as well in and that arena. Continuing to unpack the emotional and psychological. Yes. Yeah. So as I, so as I said, you know, until recently, I haven't really paid much attention to my physical safety, but I think, you know, the story that I've told about myself, there's always been impact emotionally and psychologically. And as I'm saying that to you right now, what comes to mind is kind of where it began So when I was 18 years old, I was able to obtain my adoption papers through Holt Adoption Agency, which is based out of Oregon. And what I read in there, well, actually with the limited information that was in there and what I was able to read that wasn't in Korean, I was really shocked by what I read because actually when I said to you that my earliest memories of racism was grade school. That's not true. It's actually when I read my adoption papers. And I say that because when I was in the hospital, because I was sick and malnourished, the doctor who examined me for health and gave me my birth date. Gave you your birth date. Gave me my birth date. Yes. I don't. Oh my gosh. We've never talked about that before, but it's an estimation. It's an estimation. So I could be months older or months younger. So he gave me my birthday, but this doctor in writing said, baby is too dark to be full Korean. And as a result may not be adoptable. So that's my earliest memory of when color really started to play. It was at at play from the very beginning. From the very beginning. It was at play before you even could speak or think about it. Right. And then the other memory that comes to mind is my dad used to play this little game with me and he used to say, whose little gook are you? And he taught me to say, daddy's little gook. 
So those two memories really were the beginnings of experiencing racism. I feel like I cannot breathe. Yeah. Now, my I will say that my dad used, even though the word gook is a racial slur, specifically for the Korean population, he, he said it in a loving way, if that makes sense. And so there was no negative in, intention in that. It was just something that he thought was cute. And I played along with it because I I didn't know better at the time. Well, and I believe you. And the difference between your dad and that kid on the playground, mm-hmm. are, that's they're probably light years apart. Right. But just even the use of that word. Yeah. There's implications there of less than. Mm-hmm. There's implications there of unapproved difference. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I mean, I can barely even, yeah, I'm not putting sentences together very well. So there's a couple other things when you, because it appears that you're really interested in the impact of some of the things that I'm saying. I would also say that, you know, long-term struggles with, you know, identity struggles with racism, all those things that I've talked about, I'd say probably the greatest impact, but the, the most work and work that I continue to do today is really around this being enough. And so that plays out in, in every, almost every aspect of my life, but specifically probably around work. And so I just wanted you to, to have that piece of information too, because I think it's really, really, really important. It's almost as if had I accepted myself you know, at a very young age, these challenges that I've, that I still sometimes have and, and show up, you know, wouldn't even be a thing. Yeah. So I don't, I I don't want to oversimplify what you're saying, but to try and make sure that I understand, it's kind of like if we, if we had to really crystallize what the impact of racism has been for you, Mm -hmm. It is the the message that there's something wrong with you, mm-hmm. that you're not enough, yep. that you don't measure up, and at least part of that is rooted in something you can't control, which right. is the color of your skin and the shape of your eyes. Exactly. And that that somehow makes you bad or leaves you with something that you need to be ashamed of. Mm -hmm. And there have been experiences that have reinforced that message, even though there's part of you that knows that that's not true with a capital T. Right. But the reinforcement is still there. Even in a relationship like the one with your dad, Mm -hmm. where he's, playing a loving game with you, but that message is still reinforced. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. I mean, that's a lot to sit with. It is. It is. I think that's why we're like awkward. And it's almost as if, you know, as I reflect on again, what's happening in the world 
it's almost as, as if I'm regressing because beginning at age 40 to now, how I see myself in the world is very different than I did prior to age 40. And now the racial tensions that we're seeing, it, well, it is, it's activating me and it's making me have to think about things that I felt like I had addressed. And one of the things that I want to, to let you, Jen, and your, your listeners know is that it's almost as if it's really come to a head now because my husband and I are really thinking about retirement and we're kind of getting to that age. And although we've lived in Colorado the majority of our lives, adult lives anyways, we've been really thinking about retiring to Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And for the past five years, we've been going there fishing with my husband's parents and and um, we have visited several different towns and for sure, the majority of the population in Arkansas is, is Caucasian. And it didn't appear to be a major issue. But you being Korean wasn't an issue? No, I, I didn't experience, interestingly enough, I didn't experience Arkansas like I did Iowa, how I explained it earlier. Mm-hmm. So that was really interesting to me. Now, granted, we really would kind of stay in a centralized location. We were going there for fishing trips, but we would go to the local Walmart or the grocery store, but it seemed to be okay. Like I was comfortable. I didn't suspect or feel as I had with Iowa. And so as my husband and I were talking about retirement in Arkansas, he began talking to some friends and two of the friends that he was talking to had lived there in Arkansas. And what they said to him has really made us rethink, would it be safe? Physically safe. Physically safe in Arkansas. Because what they basically said to him was, it's one thing to go and vacation or visit, but it's another to live there. As a person, As of, a color. person of color. Yeah, so we're kind of puzzled by that, but we're taking it also very seriously, especially because of what you know, again, what's been going on in the country with um, Asian Pacific Islanders being attacked just because of what they look like. And so I'm not sure what we're going to do. Well, and the fact that you even have to think about it, Kim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The fact that you even have to think about it is so staggering mm-hmm. Yeah. to me. And it's so deeply sad. Yeah, that's what's been kind of on my mind, too. Again, I've already mentioned, I know that racism exists. I've experienced it most of my life. But I think the part of me wants to think, we're living in, you know, 2021, and this is something that I actually have to be thinking about, is my safety to live in one of the states in the United States. It's just unbelievable to me, and it's our reality. So... What we're planning on doing is doing a little test and kind of branching out and doing more exploration than we normally do to see people's reaction to me. I plan on having courageous conversations with folks. Um, We plan on going to a church and seeing the response. 
and again, it's unbelievable that that I have to th- that we have to think that way and and do this test, so to speak. But we believe that it's 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 necessary. Like we can't even fathom moving, like literally moving there, unless we test it out. Well, and you've talked about having done some work around your adoption and mm-hmm. your identity and stepping into a situation that might take you back to the playground in elementary school. Right. Well, probably doesn't sound very appealing. Well, I'll tell you, like I told my husband, I won't go back. I won't go backwards. I can't go backwards. I can't to that extent. I've resolved that if people cannot accept me for who I am, what I look like, then I, I, it's, it's just not something we're going to do because I cannot, I mean, it's already taking a little, you know, a few steps back in terms of having to be more vigilant of my surroundings when I'm in the community, Totally. but it's another thing to move somewhere permanently where that's my life every day. And I cannot, nor will I do that. And so that's just what I've decided to do. So when you say, and then I'll, I'll let you off the hook. Cause I know I've been kind of grilling you on this for a while, but when you say that you intend to go there and have some courageous conversations, uh-huh. what does that mean? Well, I think just striking up a conversation with somebody and then just letting them know, Hey, we're thinking about moving down here. What might that be like for us? And just really asking, you know, let's be honest, I'm Korean and hopefully no one will tell you, you can't be Korean. (laughs) You must be Japanese or you must be from Alaska. Right. But I, I think just asking like, you know, obviously I'm Korean. Um, you know, what would people accept me here in this community? And that's a hard question to ask because it's going to be a yes or a no. And so I have to be okay with a no. And I am okay with a no because that's part of our research, right? If they say no, it's going to be like, okay, this isn't a place that we need to be. But it, it does illustrate white privilege though. Yes. Because I'm thinking if I was relocating somewhere, I'm pretty sure that it would not occur to me that I needed to go have courage and bring up these really difficult conversations with people to ask if I could be accepted in the community based on the way that I look. Right. Well, and my husband, who's Caucasian, right? That's something else that we want to research. How will they respond to him? Right. Because there's... I hate even saying this because it feels like we're going along with it, but it's like there's the question of an interracial marriage. Absolutely. Yep. Yes. So that's what I plan on doing is just striking up conversations with strangers in Walmart, in the grocery store, you know, at the, at the boating dock in church. Right. And getting to the place in our conversation that I literally ask, we're thinking about moving here. What are your thoughts about that? Would we be accepted? Would I be accepted? And seeing what they say. So it's, it's hard again to believe that we have to go to that extent and it's our reality right now. If you were going to take all of this experience 
and try to boil it down into some takeaway mm -hmm. for someone who's listening. What would you say that you know based on your experiences of racism? All I know is that racism sucks. Absolutely. I mean, it sucks for the person that um, is enduring it. I can say that it sucks for the people who love someone who's enduring it. Yeah. Not that that's as important, but just in solidarity. I would say what I really want to say is that racism sucks. Although racism sucks, I think we all can agree that it's kind of in the forefront of all of our minds right now. Just, you know, we turn on the news, there's something always happening, right? Um, and so if anything that's coming out of racism right now is the opportunity for us to really have, again, those courageous conversations with one another about people's experiences and how it impacts, you know, individuals and how we can, you know, honestly come together and learn to tolerate each other, to learn to accept one another, to let go of assumptions. And I also think that the times that we're living in right now really demands all of us to take a look at our own bias and how it shows up. Yeah. Is it mean-spirited like that kid at school? Mm-hmm. Is it unintentional and I hate to use the word loving, but I imagine your dad was being loving towards you, mm -hmm. but bias was definitely coming through. Mm-hmm. Yes. And making some shifts because racism sucks. Yes. And where conversations were closet conversations, they're now, you know, we, it's almost as if we've been given permission to have those bold conversations with one another. Um, when I say one another, I mean, you know, Asian and a Caucasian, African-American and an Asian, whatever it may be, that we're able to have those conversations. And I hope that through what I've said today, that it brings people to, well, just maybe take a minute to just stop and think about their actions towards others. And that, if anything, that they just learn to be kind and respect differences yeah, I, I think that's beautifully said. I mean, that concept of just be kind is so simple, but we clearly are having a really, really hard time mm -hmm. executing a super simple principle. So we need to bring it back to basics and just work on being kind, particularly when there's a difference. Can I take you through the questionnaire that we use to close our interviews? Sure. It's, it's quick. It's easy okay, because it's good. just, it's just bullet points here. What is your favorite word? Authenticity. 
What's your least favorite word? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. That's all right. Least favorite word. You're allowed. Huh? You're allowed to pass. Oh, I am. Well, yeah. Okay. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna hold your feet to the fire. I don't think I have a least favorite word. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, emotionally? Being on my property, sitting on top of one of the mountains and watching the sun go down. Cup of coffee. And a cup of coffee. <laughs> yes. I can only say that because of how I know you. <laughs> what turns you off? Disrespectful people. What's your favorite curse word? Fuck. Is there a sound or noise that you love? Train. A train? Yes. Like the whistle or on the track? Both. But I love the sound of a train on the track. I always wanted to have a house near a train track to listen to it go by. Is there a sound or noise that you hate? Hail. What profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? Being a fishing guide. Oh, yeah. I can see that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what profession would you definitely not like to do? A mortician. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as you pass through the pearly gates? You passed the test. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Jen. I really appreciate you being willing to sit down and have this conversation with me for trusting me enough to let me clumsily try to navigate my way through it. And I hope that for you listening, that you take away a little bit of courage, a little bit of Kim's courage with you. I hope you're able to tuck it in your pocket. And having heard some of what she has walked through in her life and some of the giants she's faced and then come out the other side and the bravery and the gentleness that she uses as she tries to address these really complex, layered, complicated issues in our society and culture. I hope that you'll be able to take a bit of that with you after listening to our conversation today. And also, hopefully you can use this opportunity to just come back to that thing that we were all trying to learn in kindergarten around being kind and being gentle with people around their differences, accepting of them and being kind anyway. It's definitely something that we are struggling with as a society, even as grown adults. And while we may get it right in pockets here and there, we all have room to grow in that area. And hopefully today's conversation with Kim can help spur all of us onward in that journey to just make the world a little bit kinder and gentler place. I want to thank you for listening in today. When our guests agree to be vulnerable with us and to share from the well of their life experience, one of the best ways that we can acknowledge that kind of courage is to communicate that what has been shared has fallen on ready ears and a heart that is open. So if there was something that struck a chord today, 
please interact with the posts on social media that are related to this episode so that you can let that storyteller know about the impact that he or she had on you. If you haven't connected with us already on one of these platforms, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram under the handle All I Know Podcast. Please remember that the ideas, opinions, and views shared today belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find fuel for working with in their own lives from every episode, it should be noted that this podcast is not a therapeutic intervention and it's not a substitute for advice or counsel from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, which is a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado, and our team works primarily with children and their families that have been impacted by developmental or early childhood trauma, and we specialize in adoption and foster care issues. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you're interested in developing a relationship as a sponsor for this project, or if you're interested in being a guest and one of our storytellers on All I Know, you can reach us at know at inwardboundco.com. I'm going to give that to you one more time. All I know at inwardboundco.com. And you'll never miss an episode if you visit the website so that you can subscribe or follow the show through your preferred streaming platform. And the way to find us on the web is to go to allIKnow.podient.co. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us at the show reminding you catch all the light you can.